BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. It's Monday, May 28, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. We're both parents. Are you worried about screen time for your kid? All the time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> worry about it every single day. Uh, Which my doesn't wi- stop me from giving it to him. <laughs> same here. My wife and I fight about it all the time. And really, like the the science around it has been all over the place. Yeah, I mean, there's there's yeah. Some people say, oh, you're you're ruining their visual development system. Uh, you know, I have a really hard time believing that's the case if you limit it to you know an hour or so a day, even when they're small. And even if it is, their visual system is adaptive, and screens are here to stay. So maybe it'll make them less nearsighted. <laughs> So I love the fact that there's so much focus on kids, but what about us? We have screens too, as well. In fact, we probably use screens more than them. Are you saying I have a screen problem? I'm saying I definitely do. Because smartphones have become incredibly smart about keeping us looking at that screen and the the notifications that light up and the buzz, all the colors, uh, and the promise of just getting more, quote unquote, whatever that means, done. So this week, I interviewed an author that looked at all the research on how we're being kept addicted to our smartphones and the ways, some cases simple, but some cases really hard, that we need to look at our behavior in order to break that addiction. Adam Alter is an associate professor of marketing at NYU's Stern School of Business with an affiliated appointment in the NYU psychology department. And he's the author of two best-selling books. Uh, Drunk Tank Pink was his first book, and that really looked at the hidden messages, uh, especially in marketing. And last year, his his new book came out called Irresistible, uh, which tracks the science of how we get addicted to our phones and what we can do to break free. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Adam Alter. This episode is sponsored by Lightstream. When do you want to start paying less interest on your credit card debt? How about today with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream? Lightstream rewards consumers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees. Get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.9% APR with AutoPay. You could save thousands of dollars in interest. Application is 100% online. You can even get your funds as soon as today. And our listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount, though, is to go to lightstream.com minds. 
That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash minds. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount available only when you select auto pay prior to loan funding. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for important information about limits on Lightstream loans and same-day funding. Adam Alter, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Is addiction the right word here? You know, a lot of people focus on that question for, I think, good reason. It's a very loaded term. It's a term that refers to a very specific set of of responses in the brain, in the body, a certain set of phenomena that we experience. I think it's it's to some extent beside the point when we talk about um, behavioral addiction to devices, because the main thing I'm focused on is whether this is a problem for us. And I think most people are willing to admit that for a lot of us, it is a problem. Uh, the question of whether we use the term addiction, though, is is an interesting and important one. And I thought about it a lot, and I decided to use it because as I think of it, a lot of the experiences we have satisfy that definition for many of us, the definition of addiction. So the, the definition I use is a behavioral addiction is any behavior that you return to over and over again, uh, that you're compelled to return to, that ultimately, although you want to return to it over again, um, undermines your well-being in at least one of four respects, either socially, psychologically, physically, or financially. And I think that's true for a lot of us, for the way we use our screens. I think for many of us, it's a social problem that um, we are becoming more remote, more removed from other people, and that it's hampering our social lives. Uh, for some people, it is psychological or physical or, or uh, financial but um, yes, I think the term is appropriate. If people want to push back very hard on that, I'm willing to let it slide. We can talk about the the phenomenon itself rather than focusing too much on the definition. I think if you were to to get me in a moment of honesty, I would fully admit that I'm addicted to my phone. But it, it's hard for me to come to that, to admit that uh, fully, because I don't think I have a good handle of how much time I actually use this. And I I was sort of shocked when you started to relay how much time we're actually spending and how much that time has grown. Can you give us an idea of how much time the average person is spending on their phone and how that is changing? Yeah, it's it's staggering. There's no doubt. One One interesting thing is that when you ask people to estimate how long they're spending on their phones, they routinely underestimate by... Uh, about half. So I, this happened to me. I spoke to a guy named Kevin Hollish who created an app called Moment, which measures how long you're spending on your phone and what you're doing during that time. And before I downloaded Moment, he said to me, just you know, as a little exercise, think about how long you think you're spending on your phone. And I, I guessed an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And I used the app for a few weeks and I saw that on average, I was using my phone for three hours a day. So I spoke to him and I said, is that typical? I feel like that that's a big number. That sounds like a lot. I mean, that's one eighth of the day and it's a huge chunk of my waking hours. And he said three hours is bang on average. That was two years ago. I spoke to him again more recently. He told me, remember, remember when I told you the average was three hours a day? Well, it's now four hours a day. So the companies that are producing content for us on our phones are doing a better job of, of acquiring our attention and keeping it and holding it. To the extent that we are now spending 33% more time than we were even two years ago, four hours. What that means is in a lifetime, if you if you extrapolate, we're spending something like 10 to 15 years of our lives looking at our phones. That's an exceptional amount of time. And it was sort of shocking when I 
try when I started to grasp those numbers because three hours in a day, you know, I'm only awake probably eight, you know, 16 to 18 hours of that day. That's a full fifth of my day that I'm looking at my phone. I'm curious though, smartphones have only been around, you know, iPhone's been out, what, 10 years, a little more than 10 years at this point. How is the science being done on some of these things? Because 10 years in the world of science is, is almost nothing in terms of the amount of time we've had to study the issue, especially since the field itself is changing so rapidly. Yeah, I think for an issue to attract attention from scientists, it needs to be seen to be a potential problem or something that deserves attention. And it took time for that to happen as well. So when the iPhone came out in 2007, no one was saying, you know, this is the end of times, we're in trouble. It took time for that to happen. I think the first thing that happens is you focus on all the the wonderful benefits of technology. And there certainly are many. Um, I'm able to communicate with my family in Australia very easily and I couldn't do that even 15 years ago. So that's that's been a huge benefit. And there are other benefits as well, convenience. Uh, there are a lot of utilities on the phone like maps and weather and all the, those sorts of things. And so you're right, 10 years isn't a long time in the world of science. And I think scientists have only really been attracted to the issue for, for maybe the last five, six, seven years. And really a lot of the attention has come in the last year or so. My book came out a year ago. And even in that time, I've seen a big rise in in interest. There were certainly people focusing on the topic before that, but uh, it's it's attracting uh, the public's attention in a new way now and to a new extent. And I think uh, more scientists are paying attention to the issue now as well. So the question of what sort of science is out there is, is an important one. And at the moment, there isn't much. There isn't much that's convincing, airtight, that shows experimentally and causally that using a phone leads to certain outcomes. There's a lot of suggestive evidence. Uh, there are a number of interesting suggestive correlational studies that point to problems. But I don't think there's a home run study out there yet that says, for example, that if kids use their phones for this many hours a day before the age of, say, 10, this is what will happen when they are 20. You know, this is how they'll be different because of it. That is really the holy grail question. I think it's a very difficult thing to study for ethical reasons, for practical reasons, for financial reasons. But that's what we need to do. And I think that's what a lot of scientists are now starting to think about. How can we do it? How can we get funding for it? And how can we encourage parents and and obviously their kids to take part in a study like that? But you said there are some suggestions here in the work. What, what, what kind of trends are we seeing in the science? Well, we're seeing some interesting things. Um, There are some experimental studies where, for example, students are randomly assigned to spend time in the presence of their phones or, for example, in a natural environment. So they'll go go to a camp where they'll they'll spend time in, in nature. And then at the end of that time, they'll be asked to do some sort of test. So one of the famous experiments, it's it's only with a very small sample, so it's not perfect. But it basically shows that kids who spend time together with other kids in a natural environment are much better able to distinguish between subtly different emotions, facial emotions like sadness, anger, fear, than are kids who spend a lot of time in front of their phones during that week instead. So basically removing yourself from from, uh, face-to-face social contact when you're a child makes you less capable of basically functioning as a social detection device. You're, you're, you struggle to distinguish between uh, the different emotions that people have. So that's that's one suggestive study. And I think that that really hints at the biggest issue that people have here, which is 
that if kids during the critical periods when they're supposed to be acquiring skills like empathy and um, emotion detection and things like that, if they're spending a lot of time on screens instead of getting real high fidelity, real time feedback in the real world, are they then less capable social beings for the rest of their lives? And that's a big question. It's one we don't have an answer to, but I think there's, there's reason to be concerned. Um, so that's one of the big studies. Then there are a lot of correlational studies that show that, for example, the more you use your phone, the more when you reach a certain threshold, the more likely you are to have depression or anxiety or loneliness or to to experience bullying, uh, to be less uh, well-rounded in other respects and in other contexts. And so I think correlational studies are inherently problematic because there are other factors that that um, could explain that relationship. But uh, they, even when you partial out some of those factors, you still find this relationship. So I think there's good reason to be concerned. But as a scientist, I'm a skeptic. And I think all scientists are or should be. And as a result, I don't think we really know absolutely at the bottom line um, what the effect of using phones is on kids or really on adults either. Yeah, I mean, kids are not the natural place for a lot of these studies to occur just because of the developmental risk. I'm curious if we see any sort of generational effects in the sense that we have a whole set of kids that are growing up with these being just part of their environment, as opposed to a generation that are learning how to use them. Are we seeing differences just because of the societal uh, ramifications of, of these tools in what we're seeing in older adults versus some kids. Yeah, well, you made you made the excellent point that the, these phones have only been around, iPhones, for example, have only been around for a decade. So the kids who were born into the iPhone era are now 10 years old, 9 years old, 8 years old maybe. That's a little bit too young for us to know how they'll function as teens, as adolescents, as young adults, as parents, as um, people in the workplace. That's one of the big concerns, though, that by the time we recognize the damage phones are doing, is, are doing, if if there is damage at all, it's going to be quite late on where there are going to be a lot of kids from, you know, a whole cohort, a huge uh, generation of kids who will have been exposed to them for many hours a day. That's why people are concerned about this. But we don't really know because they're still too young for us to be able to conclude. We do know, though, that there are certain genera- generational differences just in the way people engage with their devices. So, um, th- you know, the reason why young people use social media is very different from the reason why older people will use social media. For, for older adults, social media is basically a portal back to the real world, a thing that happened in the past. It's a nostalgia-driven device. They can see what their friends who they haven't seen in 50 years are doing, things like that. Uh, and that's, that's obviously very different from the genuine social world that young people inhabit when they go on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. To them, that's a, that's a genuine standalone social universe and for a lot of older adults, when you talk to them about Facebook, it's just really a vehicle for getting back to something that happened in the real world. Um, and I think that nostalgia is a key component that distinguishes the way younger and older people use social media and use their screens. I sort of straddle these generations. I'm 37. And so I, spe- I experienced a certain portion of my childhood where there were no screens. Um, mobile phones were not really much of a thing until I left high school. Uh, and and I, I am nostalgic for that time. Uh, it does seem in some respects to have been a superior time. Um, and obviously, kids who are born today, I have a two-year-old and a seven-month-old. They were born into this era. They will have no nostalgia for that kind of past that, that I'm nostalgic for. I think it's important that we have that because it means that we're likely to push for it, to, to try to cultivate the social experiences that we feel we've left behind in the screen age. 
And so I don't know how my kids and other people of their age will respond socially to, to the screen era, whether they'll actually seek out face-to-face interaction or whether it will seem superfluous in the same way that to our generation, real phone conversations are superfluous. We, we prefer to just text or use email. It's just easier. It seems silly to spend time on a phone call when you can just use text or um, send a WhatsApp or whatever. So, you know, I, I do worry about that a little bit. Are there lessons from history? Because the advent of television, the advent of video games, there was lots of concern about addiction rising with those technologies. What's fundamentally different about mobile devices, if anything, compared to what happened back then? Yeah, it's a it's an important question, and I think it's quite a commonly asked question. Are we just sensationalizing this? Maybe you know, we, we seem to have come through the other side with pinball machines and rock music and all these other things that people were concerned about early on. TV is a good example. I think there are some fundamental differences between screens, the screens we experience today, and those other forms of technology. One of them is that there is actually someone on the other side of these screens, actually thousands of people on the other side of these screens, who are doing everything they possibly can to, to capture your attention. And They are very good at that. They have a lot of data that helps them make decisions like whether to include a particular feature or whether to remove that feature, whether to build in a certain hook into the product uh, or whether to leave that hook out. And so people creating pinball machines, the people creating TV shows, they weren't as directed in ensnaring your attention. I think a better analogy is things like slot machines. So when you're creating a slot machine, you're doing everything in your power to ensure that people spend as much time in front of that slot machine as possible. That's not really true in the same way of te- uh, uh, with uh, TV or pinball machines. Um, and it, it's certainly true of, of uh, screens. We know this because people in the companies that produce the apps that we use have said explicitly, yes, the main thing we're concerned about is not consumer well-being. It's about ensuring that you spend as many minutes a day on our platform rather than the alternatives. So that's that's a huge part of, of, uh, of the issue. The, the other thing I think is that the rate at which um, screen content is evolving today is, is really dramatically faster than the rate at which things like TV or pinball machines or video games evolved. TV essentially is a very similar medium to what it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, you have more channels now. The, the picture is a little better. The sound is a little better, but it's essentially the same thing you're, you're viewing. The way we use our screens changes so fast. You know, every time Facebook introduces a new feature, it may seem like a trivial introduction or a trivial change, but those changes have a huge impact on billions of people. So the introduction of the like button, the introduction of the news feed, turning that news feed into a bottomless experience where there was no natural endpoint, each of those seem like reasonably small changes to what Facebook was in essence but each change is mammoth, and those changes happen all the time on all of these different platforms, half of which we don't even recognize to be happening. Again, that distinguishes the time we spend on screens with the time we spent in uh, in front of pinball machines and TV and rock music and so on. So I think there are things that make this more concerning, um, not to mention the number of people we're affecting here. We're talking about billions of people. Uh, so I, I do think this is different from from some of the technologies that we've been concerned about in the past. I think we all recognize what you're referring to when, in terms of the companies designing apps that are that subsume all of our attention. There's no stopping cues. There's constant notifications. There's an ecosystem that's designed to keep us within it for a long period of time. And I understand the the short term gain for a company to have that. 
uh, there's financial gain um, from that. But do these companies have an ethical responsibility at all? Do they have some sort of requirement to the long-term health of the user? Is that a conversation that's even happening? Yeah, it's starting to happen more and more. Uh, and yes, they do have an ethical responsibility. I think anytime you can capture the the attention of billions of people, you have a responsibility to do the right thing by them. And one of the terms that's being bandied about is um, Hippocratic Oath for the tech industry. So the idea here is that when a doctor performs any medical procedure or makes a medical decision, the first question the doctor asks him or herself is, uh, above all, am I not doing harm? And that's the first question. You know, once you start thinking about all the upsides from a, a treatment decision, you can only start thinking of those upsides once you've decided that you're not doing harm. And I think that's the way technology companies should approach the decisions they're making as well. So when I introduce the like button, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing I could be doing to the billions of consumers of Facebook or of Instagram or any other platform? Once I've thought about that, I can consider whether this is going to make money for the shareholders or whether it's going to make the experience more fun and engaging and interesting in a way that actually brings consumers benefit. Uh, and so, yes, I think there is a e huge ethical question here. And I'm not sure that a lot of the big companies are paying quite enough attention to it. And that's one of the big questions now for people who study this topic, especially from a policy perspective. How do we compel Facebook, Apple, Google, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, and so on to, to take this issue seriously? And how do we make it incentive compatible as well? Because it makes sense that if you're designing Facebook, you want to ensure that your company makes as much money as possible and that your shareholders make a lot of money. And that's fundamentally incompatible with ensuring consumer well-being when the way you make money is to ensure that consumers spend all their waking minutes on your platform. So it's a big challenge and it's something a lot of people are thinking about at the moment. I understand why you're suggesting this, that there needs to be some effort made from the company side. Uh, but I, I understand there'll be pushback. There's personal responsibility here too. And even though these companies are exploiting a, uh, our biology against us isn't there something to be said for for us exerting our own control on these systems as well absolutely i i don't think anyone would argue that there is no personal responsibility element here absolutely we need to be responsible and one of the big things i talk about to audiences when i speak about this is what can you do and what should you do you can't just blame these companies. You're making a decision to unlock your phone every time you do that. And so you are playing a role in this in this situation. The thing is, we're up against a very strong, uh, thoughtful, well put together foe that's doing everything in its power to ensure that we spend as much of our attention on, it, on its devices and on its platforms and apps. And, and so it's true that there is a resp personal responsibility element, but that's that's this, it's the same personal responsibility element that's true for drug taking or alcohol use or tobacco use. You know, we, we've changed the way tobacco companies can advertise because, yes, there's a personal responsibility element, but the more they advertise, the more kids get involved, the more kids start smoking at younger ages and so on. So there's a balance to be, to be struck here between personal responsibility and the responsibility of companies that are creating the content. Right now, we're expecting consumers to have all the responsibility, to take all the right steps. Um, and that's what these companies are basically suggesting. And I think that's unrealistic and it's it's not fair and it's not the world I want to live in. I don't want to live in a world where unless I'm the absolutely perfect human being, I'm not going to be able to be happy and healthy and well-adjusted. 
And that's the world these companies are creating for us. I think what they should be doing and what they should be pushed to do is to create platforms that certainly are engaging, but that also respect us, respect our well-being and respect our ability to make smart decisions. And right now, I don't think they do that because they build in these hooks that based on the weaknesses and foibles of being a human are very, very hard for us to resist. There's a quote I love um, in your book. Once your cucumber brain has become pickled, it can never go back to being a cucumber. It's from uh, Hillary Cash. And the reason I love it is it it brings forth this idea of once we're addicted, are there things that we can do to move away from that addiction? And can we ever return to quote unquote normal? You can. And you can to an extent. I guess the, the point she's making there is that um, she runs a clinic that treats um, people who, mainly young men who are addicted to video games and, and the internet and other forms of online technology. And what she was basically saying was that you have to be vigilant for the rest of your life once effectively, as she says, your cucumber brain has become pickled once it's a pickle. Um, and she's she's basically saying that you can never go back to being the person you were before that addiction took hold. What you can do is you can set up your life in such a way that you're much less likely to re-experience that addiction. And it's really about being smart, about understanding your triggers, about understanding why it is that for, for the rest of us, perhaps we're not quite at that level, but for the rest of us, why we unlock our phones 100 times a day, why we spend four hours a day on our phones. If you know what the triggers are, then you can do something about it. So, you know, a classic example of this is um, there's a term from psychology from the 50s known as propinquity. And the idea with propinquity is the things that are closest in physical space to you are the things that have the biggest effect on your psychological experience of the world. It's such a basic concept. It it's, doesn't sound profound. But basically, if your phone is on you all the time, if it's in your pocket, if it's right next to you, if you don't have to move your feet to reach it, it will have a bigger effect on your experience of the world. So what can we do as consumers? Well, the single best thing we can do is to ensure that we are among the 25% of American adults who, for at least part of the day, cannot reach their phones without having to move their feet. What that means is 75% of American adults, when you ask them 24 hours a day, including when they're asleep, they will tell you, I can reach my phone without needing to move my feet. And so that's not a good state to be in if you're trying to resist your phone. Best thing you can do is say, dinner time or between 5 and 7 p.m., or the hour and a half before bed, I'm going to put my phone in another room so I, I absolutely cannot reach it. I can't be tempted to unlock it because I can't reach it physically. So that's a, that's a big part of it as well. You know, the other thing I, I've heard sort of come into vogue, and, and you reference it a bit in your book, is the intentional use of certain apps on your phone. I think popular as of late has been the idea of grayscaling your phone so you're not immediately attracted to some of the notifications and colorful elements so you intentionally open apps or you bury apps on a on a back page of your phone so you only open them when you need them does that actually work yes it's it's the it's the weaker version of this concept that I just mentioned of, of making things as hard to reach as possible. What you effectively want to do is set up barriers. So right now what happens for most of us is we unlock our phones and on that, front, that home screen will be all the apps that we find most irresistible because that's how you think it's best to organize your phone. So for some of us, it'll be Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. For others, the email icon will be right there. What that means is every time you unlock your phone to check the time, and many of us don't use watches now, 
every time you do that, you'll get the trigger. You'll see the little Facebook app. You'll see the little email app. And you'll just be tempted to quickly check. And then suddenly you'll be in that loop. And most of us have this loop where every time I unlock my phone, I quickly check email, then Instagram, then Facebook, then Twitter, then email, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And you just keep going around in circles. And sometimes you shake yourself out of that reverie and you're like, I can't believe I just spent 20 minutes checking these same four apps over and over and over again. The best way to avoid that is to bury all of those apps as far away as possible in a folder somewhere deep in the fourth page on your phone. So the only way to access them, as you say, is intentionally, with intentionality, where you say, have to search for them or um, you have to go skip across four pages. You have to make a lot of physical movements before you get there. Right now, most of us have set up our lives where those apps call to us constantly uh, and so to the extent that we can wrest control from the apps, we can decide it's time now for me to check, uh, we'll probably be better off and better able to resist them. What do you think the long-term ramifications of this addiction will be for us? We're only about 10 years into this worldwide experiment. I think, uh, you know, we, we always feel, this is a, a human foible, we always feel that we've sort of arrived at an important destination wherever we happen to be. And then 10 years later, we look back and say, well, that was only a waypoint. You know, I'm, I'm much higher up the mountain now. We sort of feel that Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat are these, these grand applications that'll be with us for perhaps forever, who knows? I think in 10 years, we're going to look back at them as curiosities. We may still be using them to some extent, but they'll have evolved so far from what they are now that they won't look anything like what they do today. And others will just have fallen by the wayside. We won't be using them at all. What I think a lot of us will be doing, though, and if you talk to people in the industry, they'll say this, is we'll be spending a lot of our time buried in virtual reality and augmented reality goggles, where we'll be living our lives not just through these rectangular devices, these screens on our phones, but also inside goggles where we're completely removed from the outside world. So one of the big concerns is that as concerning as it is that we pour four hours a day into our phones, imagine how hard it will be to resist this perfect virtual world that we can escape to at any moment in time. You know, every time life becomes a little bit difficult, you can go to a beach in Greece by just putting on the right goggles and putting on the right haptic suit and suddenly, hey, I'm at a beach, I'm on a beach in Greece. That seems really attractive. And humans are essentially hedonic, hedonically driven, pleasure-seeking creatures. That's what we do. And it makes sense for us to do that. At least historically, it's been adaptive because usually the things that bring us pleasure are pretty good for us. In this world now, I'm not sure that that same evolutionary drive makes a lot of sense. I think the people who just give in to that in impulse to find the, the path of least resistance especially when it happens to be in the virtual world for hours and hours and hours at a time, I think that's going to be a huge concern. I think it's going to change the way the world works. I think it'll change the nature of our social lives, the richness of the communication and the, the connections we, we draw between each other. Uh, and so I, I think it's a, it's a major concern. And I think we're, we're not even close to that point yet. I just hope we as a, as a culture become much more mindful about these issues so we're able to head some of them off at the past before they become all-encompassing. And I want to end on a hopeful note. I, you self-admittedly said you yourself were addicted to phones and that sort of drove your interest in writing this book. You, you're aware of the science. You're aware of the trappings of this phone. Have you been able to make any changes for the better? Yeah, to an extent I have. I, I try to take on a lot of the ideas that I talk about in the book and that I've uh, been speaking about since then. So for example, on the weekend, I try to put my phone on airplane mode during the day so it functions more as a camera than as a smartphone. 
And what that means is that I, I have these two young kids and they're doing interesting things all the time and they're a lot of fun. And so I want to be able to capture them and the things they're doing. And I can still do that. My phone allows me to do that. So I've preserved the best element of the phone and done away with the, the elements that I think are a little bit less conducive to my well-being. So there's that. I try very hard at dinner time to never have the phone anywhere near me. And usually that works out pretty well. Uh, it means that dinner time is a bit of an escape for me. It's a time to connect with my family, with my wife, with my kids. I, I also try very hard not to use my phone before bed. I'm less successful on that front. But um, I try very hard not to use the phone before bed because the light that it emits, that bluish white light, tends to convince the body that it's daytime. And so in effect, you're inducing jet lag every time you use your phone just before bed. So I, I've been fairly successful on some fronts, moderately successful on others. Um, I'm always open to new tactics, new approaches, um, but I feel that my relationship with my phone is much healthier than it was. Well, I think that's something to to celebrate. And at least you've helped me stop looking at my phone for the last half hour. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Adam Alter, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So I feel very proud of myself because we do have a rule in our household that there are no screens at the dinner table. Oh, good for you. Do you feel like that actually has led to uh, improvement of quality of life? I mean, it's certainly Im improvement in quality of conversation <laughs> and quality of feeling connected to the rest of my family. And yeah, to me, I just think that's a really bad habit, you know, because when does that not stop? Like, you know, there there have been a couple of times when I've been really tired and I've been, you know, solo parenting and I make dinner and I let him watch, you know, Mighty Machines for half an hour while I make dinner. And then I just don't feel like making him turn it off. I mean, this is a thing I actually kind of wanted to push back on Adam about is I get it, that his assumption is that if we are actually more connected, we put down the phones, we'd be happier. And I mostly agree with that. But I do think in some cases, there are people that really enjoy the escape into that phone. Yeah, I mean, I and I think there are moments for that. But I think there also have to be moments in which we we consciously try to reconnect. And, you know, around a meal around dinner, you know, for me, that's a really special time to, to do that an easy time to do that. And so yeah, so I think like, you know, once in a while, it's not gonna, you know, be terrible. But on the other hand, you know, I want want to have that moment where we're all sitting down and, and able to talk about our day. But let me say the other side of this is like we always talk about like how we're addicted to screens and, and the screens are bad. The screens are bad. You know, one thing that I actually think that there's as a professor at York University in, in Toronto that's been studying is, is not so much that we are now, you know, addicted to the screens. We don't know how to be bored. We're actually, you know, kind of desensitized to being bored. And it's become much more difficult for us to just be alone with our thoughts, you know, compared to 10 years ago, when we didn't have all of these distractions. What do you think about that? I can't remember the last time I was bored. Like, and like when I what I was picturing when you said that was just like, when's the last time I just like, sat and did nothing? Like yeah. stared at a wall or stared at the ceiling. Right. Like it used to be doctor's waiting room or, you know, on a plane, you know, like before you take off, there was like a half an hour where you really couldn't do anything. Maybe you could read, but that was about it. You know, and I feel like now we just don't really have those kinds of opportunities anymore. This feels like magic because I feel like you're convincing me to go look at a wall later tonight. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and in fact, even when we are bored, now we feel like we have to meditate to make that time useful. I mean, I think I think there's something to this idea that, you know, we just used to be more comfortable being alone with our thoughts. And, and maybe that's a skill that we shouldn't put, you know, shouldn't toss aside. So blasely, blithely, blithely. There is something very American about if 
if you're being productive, that means you're being good. And I think that's the social norm that you're sort of po- poking at. Here. There is that for sure, for sure. And, and, and I think our European uh, friends often, you know, chide us for that. Rightfully so. Well, well, we don't want to keep you from being productive. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show where you can find lots of notes and links to the books that we talk about on the show and various other things. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And if you pledge $5 or more per month, you get an ad-free version of our show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else that keeps you from being bored to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Reinchia. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Andre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Inquiring Minds is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Want to expand your potential? With over 65,000 courses, starting at just $11.99, Udemy can help you develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Visit ude.my slash inquiring or download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.